Heaps Good Politics. Come on and put us to the test. Make a change in the nick of time. Forget the rest. Heaps Good Politics. Hello everyone, welcome to your new favourite podcast. This is Heaps Good Politics. My name's Roger. I'm joined via Skype by Seb. Hi Seb, how are you going? I'm good. I'm up at the International Space Station at the moment. It's f***ing cold, but I'm glad to be here. Completing the classic radio trio of two laddie blokes and one girl to laugh at our jokes, we've got Maud. Hey Maud, how are you going? Hello. I'm so glad we were able to fulfil that two laddie lads criteria. Um, I think you guys should be grateful this is a radio show, not a television show. Anyway, Roger, what are we doing here? Why on earth are we making a podcast about South Australian politics? Uh, the state election, South Australian election, is coming up on March 17th. I'm sure you've all got it in your calendars. And we thought it was a pretty interesting election, don't you think, Maud? Yeah, you know, I love politics, Roger. I'm a junkie. But um, this one's pretty special. Some would say the best in, you know, nearly four years <laughs> or more. <laughs> oh, yeah, nearly four years. I think that would be pretty accurate. We've seen um, Labor dominance for a very long time now. But um, this year things are being mixed up a little bit with the entrance of Nick Xenophon's SA Best team. We'll be sort of talking to you about what we think about the key issues, but we've also got some interviews lined up. Isn't that right, Seb? You bet we have. We have a variety of the uh, politicians. We've got the Premier. We have uh, no one from Nick Xenophon. We're still trying to track him yeah. down. We've he remains got... elusive. Yeah, we've got rangers after him, we've got helicopters after him, but he's, he's a hard man to track down. Um, and then we've got some business and community leaders as well. Yeah, so so yeah, we don't we don't have anyone from SA Best yet. We're still chasing up. Hopefully, we will. But but we do have Labor, Liberal, and and other um, political figures as well. So let's get started by just explaining a little bit about how the South Australian Parliament works. We have two sections: a House of Assembly and a Legislative Council. Roger, would you like to tell us a bit about the House of Assembly? Sure. So the House of Assembly or the lower house, it's basically like the House of Representatives in in federal politics. It's, it's the house where government is formed and there are 47 members, each one um, elected by an electorate. I'm in Dunstan, named after oh. a good, good mate that we'll meet later on in the episode. Yes. But, um, so basically 47 seats like we mentioned and, and the parties will need a majority of 24 to make government. The magic number. Magic number is 24. Remains elusive in SA politics actually and that's, mm. that's uh, last election no one was able to make 24 and may happen again but then there's the upper house or, or the legislative council do you want to tell us a bit about that Maud? Sure so the legislative council or the upper house has 22 <laughs> members and these are elected proportionately which basically means that everyone in South Australia has a say um, regardless of where you live so the interesting thing about the upper house is that only 11 seats are up for grabs each election so um, every four years half of half of those elected members stand for re-election which means that they each serve eight-year terms so Roger with all that in mind who's actually got the reins of the state at the moment yeah, well, Jay Weatheron and his Labor Party are in power at the moment, but it is a minority government. They weren't able to make the um, magic number of 24. There's 23 Labor members in the lower house at the moment, 19 Liberals and, and five Independents. And it was with some of those Independents that Jay Weatherall was able to form his minority government. 
Meanwhile, in the upper house, it's a it's also a bit of a spread. There's eight each of Liberal and Labor with two Greens, two of the Australian Conservative Party, which is Cory Bernardi's party, and one from Dignity um, and one from Advance SA, which is a remnant of Nick Xenophon's old political party. Isn't that right? You could say he leaves a trail behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's amazing to see them still kicking on. Like, you know. <laughs> no, I think just, just some interesting points about the upper house. I mean, as you can see, there's a wider spread of candidates than the lower house, and that really represents the different ways that they are elected. Uh, so that's actually what you see in countries that don't have an electorate system when they've got everybody able to vote as one big cohort. You, get, you tend to see more smaller voices raised up. Okay, so one last practical thing before we get on to the juicy politics. It's probably a good idea to just explain how preferential voting works. I think this can be a bit confusing for any voter, but especially first-time voters. So here's Mark Parnell, who's a, a Green senator in South Australia and also the parliamentary leader for the Greens. He's got a few insights on preferential voting, was actually involved in some of the recent changes. If you'd voted us first... Um, and then voted for which of the major parties you prefer second, then if the Greens person doesn't get elected, your vote carries on um, at full value to your next choice. The the Greens or no other party can give preferences to anyone. Um, But it hasn't always been like that. And the voting system in the upper house is a bit different. And up until this election, the way it's worked is that if you voted uh, one Greens above the line, then effectively what you've said is... I want the Greens uh, to have my first vote and then I'll leave it to them to decide where all the other votes go. It's probably not exactly what they wanted to happen because they've got no idea who all these other candidates were. Um, And they resulted in backroom preference deals where in fact the parties could determine where, where votes ended up. Now, I'm very proud of the fact that I introduced a bill into Parliament that knocked that system on its head. Now, I said in the lower house, you have to number every square. In the upper house, as many or as few as you want above the line. We should also just give you the heads up that this podcast is going to focus primarily on the lower house, given this is the house in which government is formed. We may dabble in the upper house and um, and give you a few bites here and there, but try not to get pissy with us if we don't mention your favourite peripheral parties. Okay, well, should we take a bit of a step back in time and, and sort of briefly touch on the history of South Australian politics? Yeah, we'd love to. Yeah. I think I'd rather. <laughs> well, I mean, we won't spend too much on time on this, but there are a few things that I think are, are quite important to know and that actually do have an influence on the state of politics today and, and specifically this election. There's this guy that I hear quite a lot about, yeah. um, Thomas Playford. Yeah. Who was he? Um, Thomas Playford is the longest-serving... Uh, Premier of South Australia, and he's sort of quite notorious for uh, what's called the Playmander, which is the reason he was in power for so long. It's not a Charmander. <laughs> it's not a Pokemon. Uh, it's a electoral malapportionment. Oh, stop Whoa. That's a mighty big word for you, Roger. I got another big word for you, and that's uh, portmanteau. Oh, that's, what, oh. that's what the Playmander was. We've a culture was. in this podcast, don't we? <laughs> um, the Playmander is a portmanteau of Thomas Playford and gerrymander. The Playmander wasn't really a gerrymander. It was more of an electoral malapportionment, which I referred to before. But basically what what happened was the rural seats in South Australia carried a lot more weight proportionately than the city seats did. Um, This uh, Playmander ran from the mid-30s to late-60s. And and during this time, or a bit before it, there was a, a flocking of rural people into the city and less population in the country than there was previously 
the electorates didn't change to reflect that. And so there were much fewer people in those electorates, as few as 4,000 people in some electorates in the country compared to as many as 40,000 in the city. So because the country normally votes liberal, and in fact, it was the liberal country party at the time, they were able to sort of hold the reins for quite a long time. The um, the flamander was fixed by um, the more progressive successor of Thomas Playford. His name was Steele Hall. And that actually led to a lot of disputes among the Liberal Party and, and factional infighting. And, and really, um, the Liberal Party has not really been the same since. I guess the other uh, real famous politician from South Australia's history is uh, Don Dunstan. Yes. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, so, so Don Dunstan was the Labor leader and he was Premier from 1970 to 1979. It's referred to as the Dunstan decade. He was very charismatic, very, very interesting guy. He's known for wearing pink shorts to parliament and he was able to win four elections for Labor and made some pretty massive progressive changes in the state. He embraced multiculturalism. He gave rights to gay citizens and indigenous Australians. There was a massive investment in arts and the Dunstan Playhouse is named after him. He appointed the first female Supreme Court judge in Australia, Dame Roma Mitchell. He also reversed um, quite restrictive laws on hospitality. Uh, they used to have to close bars at 6 p.m. Close to what they do in Sydney, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah so he, he switched that around and, and there was an explosion of fine dining. And- so then people obviously liked what they saw in the Dunstan decade because... They've almost been voting Labor ever since. In fact, since that time, Labor have won 11 elections to Liberals only three. So here's university academic Professor Jenny Stock talking about why Labor's been in control for so long. Well, one of the reasons would be Labor leadership's been extremely stable since, was it 1994? There's only been two leaders, that was Rann and Wetherill. The Liberals, on the other hand, in that period of time have had seven leaders. The Labor Party is a very strongly disciplined party. The Liberals, meanwhile, they've been very divided and that division goes back to the 1970s in what's called the Dunstan decade when very popular Premier Don Dunstan won four consecutive elections. The Liberals meanwhile imploded. They haven't really sorted themselves out. Here are some words from the Honourable Ian Hunter who is the Minister for Environment. He really doesn't mince his words when it comes to chatting about where the Liberals have gone wrong. Uh, a large part of it's got to do with natural talent that has accrued in Labor, and no talent whatsoever in the Liberal Party. I like to think that the state-based Labor parties are much more responsive to their local communities, have thrown up leaders from our communities, uh, whereas uh, the Liberals being sort of the big end of town and looking after the big corporates. But I think uh, the crux of it is, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, um, uh, we threw up premiers who were dealing with issues on a national level. Uh, the white Australia policy, immigration policy. And we threw up leaders who spoke about those ambitions and the desire of the Australian people to actually better themselves or better their communities. And um, and the Liberals didn't. They looked inwards. Finally, we have uh, the Liberal shadow treasurer, Rob Lucas. Well, look, I think in part, uh, if we're honest, for the good part of the 70s, 80s, 90s and even the early noughties, we were uh, divided, disunited, dysfunctional, uh, organisation, that there were battles between prominent Liberals within the party. What what I am able to say is that under Stephen Marshall's leadership for the last five years, pleasingly all of that division, disunity and dysfunction 
in the state parliamentary party has disappeared. So Labor's been in control for a long time. And in fact, this current government is the longest uh, one party's been in control since Thomas Playford's Playmander-assisted reign. So, so they've been in control for 16 years, since 2002. But things are starting to change. Isn't that right, Seb? Things are starting to change, Roger. Actually, most recently, we, uh, they were forced into minority government. Uh, where neither party got majority seats in the lower house and Labor had to rely on independence to stay in government. Yeah, and now there's a new twist. What is I it? I know, what? it just gets curlier and curlier by the day. There's a bit of a new player on the block and certainly not someone new to politics. In fact, um, this man will play a bit of a who am... Nah, that's <laughs> so we're talking about SA Best. We're talking about Nick Xenophon's um, team, SA Best, which registered um, early last year. So let, let's take a look back and, and see where Xenophon started, because you're right, he's not new to South Australian politics. He, his political career began in 1997, uh, where he ran for the South Australian Legislative Council or the Upper House, which we talked about before. He was the first independent to get into the South Australian Legislative Council for 60 years, um, running on a no pokies ticket. Um, he was known for some quite interesting political stunts and, and sticking up for the little guy. Here's Professor Jenny Stock again talking about Nick Xenophon's political beginnings. Well, he started off quietly in the Upper House here uh, many years ago. He ran on a no pokies platform because as a lawyer he'd seen too many people injured at work blow their compensation in gambling particularly poker machines. He won a small primary vote but was able to be elected the first time on preferences. Subsequently he's been re-elected every time with a higher vote because he now has a higher profile. He knows where to go when people come to him with problems and he's built up a reputation uh, as the go-to person when you've got a problem that you cannot get your local member or other politicians to take notice of. Yeah, so he was a member of the Legislative Council for 10 years and then he um, he did quit state politics and, and decided to run for the federal Senate. Do you know what he did at his uh, press conference when he announced this? Oh, please, tell me more. Roger. So he went to the zoo, um, went to the giraffe enclosure, said he was sticking his neck out for South Australia Oh. So, uh, yeah, there you go. That's... I mean, you could have just saved time and used a photo of a giraffe, <laughs> couldn't you? <laughs> no, no, you've got to spend your budget on something. Nick doesn't do things in half measures, Seb. That's actually brilliant. Maybe we should do that for the launch of our podcast. Yeah, we need to think of... We could go up to Manata or something. go to the Flamingo. This podcast is hardly standing on one leg. We can't admit we can't afford a giraffe. <laughs> so in 2007, he entered the federal race. What happened after that, Roger? Yeah, so he, he stayed in, in the Senate for another 10 years. and But in 2017, just last year, he quit federal politics and, and he's decided to come back to old SA. By this time, he's making a play for the House of Assembly in the lower house with his SA Best Party. He certainly has made quite a splash in, in state politics. When we mention Nick Xenophon and SA Best to our major political parties, each side seemed to be pretty keen to distance themselves from him. Here is the Premier, Jay Weatherall, and what he has to say about SA Best, and in particular Nick Xenophon. Uh, we think there are two major players. There are basically the Labor Party, progressive politics, and then there's uh, three conservative options. So you've got you know, the Liberal Party itself, and then you've got Cory Bernardi that's off there running his conservatives. And you've got Nick Xenophon, who was a former member of the Liberal Party and has got about eight former Liberals running for him. So it, 
from from our perspective, it's the same old fight, progressive versus conservative. I think the fundamentally the reason you've seen these other elements on the scene is because the Liberal Party are generally regarded as completely hopeless. I mean, Nick is one of the great opportunists. He's seen uh, a vacuum into which he's rushed. And, you know, Nick's got a nose like a bloodhound for a political opportunity. And he... Um, He's seeing that there's a gap on that side of politics and he wants to rush into it. And he's obviously trying to crib some Labor votes as well but uh, by pretending to be in the centre. But the truth is, you know, he's, he's just a Conservative and the evidence for that is that in Canberra he voted 82% of the time with the Libs. Labor Minister Ian Hunter had even fewer words to mince when it came to Nick Xenophon. What you've not seen from Nick Xenophon, or any of his candidates who aren't allowed to speak, of course, is policy. You know, Nick Xenophon, in my view, is just liberal light, very light, policy light. I mean, we can kind of see that, like, they're kind of pushing the same line there, aren't they? Mm. Um, the, the Labor Party have clearly got their, uh, their strategy quite well streamlined, don't they? Yeah, so Labor seem very keen to portray Nick Xenophon as basically another liberal party. Um, when we asked the shadow treasurer, Rob Lucas, about this, he didn't really agree with that. No, well, it's a nonsense, and it's obviously a political decision, a political spin. The reality is that, uh, you know, in a couple of the key policy areas, tapping local government council rates, opening up shopping hours, uh, Nick Xenophon strongly supporting uh, the Labor government's position on it. I mean, our central argument in relation to positioning of the political parties is that because Nick Xenophon's refusing to say what he'll do should he hold the balance of power after the election, He's actually saying, well, it is possible that after the election, if I've got the balance of power, I might put Jay Weatherall back into government. We also wanted to hear from the leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, we know he's got strong thoughts about Nick Xenophon. Unfortunately, he declined to be interviewed for this podcast, but he did instead send along another Stephen, Stephen Knoll, who is a member of the Liberal Party and is also a member of the leadership team. Well, I think that instead of words, we need to look at actions. And to this point, as we're... Recording this right now, Nick Xenophon is running in 31 seats. And of those, 20 seats are Liberal seats or notional Liberal seats and 11 are Labor seats. And so by his very actions, he is trying to take on the Liberal Party. That is a very clear indication that he's in fact trying to get a Labor government to be re-elected. So Labor seem to think that he's Liberal and Liberals seem to think that he's Labor. I wonder what Professor Jenny Stock thinks. They've all, unashamedly, a lot of them have been candidates for mainly Liberal, but some Labor, as we know. He's trying to spread it um, because he wants to appeal to um, Labor people who are disillusioned with um, you know, the current government and would like to give him a go. It's more the, cent- the leftish of, of the Liberal Party and to a certain extent, some of the of Labor would be attracted to Xenophon as well. So to summarise what the politicians and Jenny have said, he is kind of just to the left of the Liberal Party and is seeking to take advantage of the uh, disorganisation of the Liberal Party to win votes in South Australia. Is that what you guys took from that? Yeah, and I guess he's also wanting to, to steal some from Labor who might not be happy with having Labor in power for 18 years, so... There is the other argument that he is appealing to the populist vote. So we also spoke to Nigel McBride, the CEO of Business SA, and Ross Womersley, the CEO of the South Australian Council of Social Services. And they had some pretty interesting things to say about why Xenophon is appealing to a lot of South Australians. Here's Ross. Oh, I, I think we shouldn't kid ourselves that some of the, some of the 
popular appeal of SA Best is like with it, it's a bit like the Trumpian thing. We hate everybody and so throw them all out and we want a new set of leadership. Interestingly, Business SA CEO Nigel McBride also referenced our favourite ranger politician. No offence to Pauline Hanson. Even rusted on voters of right and left are jaded with a two-party system. We've seen that across the world. We've seen the Trump era. So along comes Nick. Nick's a very charismatic, charming man, and he's um, he's great at getting headlines, um, and he's great at working the populist thing. As we've said, this election is predicted to be quite close, but it looks like it might even be to the extent that Nick Xenophon's SA Best team could hold the balance of power or even form government in their own mm. right. So I guess the important question is, will the Liberal Party and the Labor Party even play ball? Well, the Liberals seem pretty firm on the fact that they won't. Here's Stephen Knoll. Stephen Marshall has been extremely strong in this regard uh, and saying that we won't be doing a deal with Nick Xenophon and I certainly agree with that statement. What South Australia needs is a majority Liberal government. The instability that comes with minority government is not one that we want to get involved with. But things are a little bit less certain on the side of Labor. Here's Jay Weatherill. I haven't, we haven't ruled anything out. I obviously want to get there by ourselves and we'll, we'll try and form a majority if we can. Uh, if we can't do that, we'll look for other like-minded people. If we can't do that, we'll, we'll have to see whether there's anybody in Nick's team, if, if he gets anybody elected, uh, that, that's prepared to, to uh, be part of it. This is how academic Jenny Stock believes the leaders of the Liberal and Labor Party will react to Xenophon after the election. Marshall said he won't. There's some doubt about that. Say he got more seats than Weatherall then he would be strongly tempted to do a deal. I have more confidence on the ability of Jay Weatherall and Nick Xenophon to do a deal. Now, Xenophon doesn't want to be Premier very wisely. <laughs> he wouldn't want to be. But he apparently would like significant um, ministries if he helped form. It wouldn't be a formal coalition. It would be an informal one. Jenny Stock also has some thoughts on why minority government is sometimes a good thing. Actually, their legislation, because it has to be mediated all the time, is often better. They don't do and go and do reckless things. I mean, an example of a government that didn't have any checks and balances would be Campbell Newman up in Queensland, where they don't even have an upper house, and he had a majority in the lower house. Well, what you're tempted to do is to plough through regardless and then you become so darn unpopular that you get chucked out next time. I guess one final interesting point is if we take us all back to 97, Xenophon runs on no pokies. Fast forward a bit over 20 years to now, he's actually running on less pokies, so he's become a lot more moderate in the intervening 20 years. One other factor that's going to be at play in this election is the notion of electoral redistribution. Roger, what is a redistribution? Why does it matter? So basically in 1991, there was a, actually a statewide referendum um, where people had to vote on, on whether they thought the electorates should be redrawn after each election. And everyone said yes. And uh, I think it was a hang up from the Playmander where there was all of these outdated things. Now there's a fairness clause that specifically says that they should try to make it so that the party that wins the highest two-party preferred vote is also the party that would have won the most amount of seats. So usually these redraws are, are quite small and we don't really notice them, but because last year's election um, was so close and, and the Liberals actually won the two-party preferred 
vote but didn't win more seats than the Labour Party, they made quite a, a large redistribution of the electorates. And it's affected all of the electorates except for one. And on the whole, it definitely benefits the Liberal Party. And reports say up to four seats have, have notionally changed hands from Labour to Liberal. So Labour's facing quite a, a, a significant swing against them just from the fact that the lines have been drawn a bit differently. So this is what Jenny Stock had to say about it. Because population moves around a lot, we've now got it in law that you have to have a redistribution of seats every four years. Now, normally they're only small distributions, but this time we've had a major one, and uh, I think people are going to be surprised when they go to the polls to find they're in a different electorate, and that the MP that they thought represented them from last time is not the one that's going to next time. So it's a massive change. It's believed that the Liberals will do better out of this redistribution. But the whole premise of redistributing used to be roughly equal-sized electorates with community of interest, geographical features, things like that, to decide where the boundaries would go. But a new element was brought in back in 2009 when we decided to insert a fairness clause into the Electoral Act I even had a referendum about it, to try and ensure that when they redrew the boundaries, the people who had won the popular vote last time would be have a good chance of winning the right number of seats next time round. And here's what the Honourable Ian Hunter had to say about the redistribution. I have a fundamental disagreement with what they've done. It's departed from long-established practice of previous redistribution committees, and I think they've made a critical error. Since the 70s, and people have fought to get an equality of votes in South Australia. For a long time, Labor could not get into government because there was an inequality of voting populations. Brought in by the Liberals and Thomas Playford, deliberately to give them an advantage. We made the big change in the 70s, and this was a, a huge political fight. And I think the last redistribution decision really uh, was a tawdry uh, outcome from uh, the perspective of one vote, one value. Uh, I think it really diminished it. And in my opinion, it was a mistake, which hopefully will be corrected later on. Stephen Noll, on the other hand, thinks that the electoral boundaries are finally fair and they've been victim of a plamander of their own. What I'd say about this boundary redistribution is not that it favours the Liberal Party, but that for the first time in really 40 years, we've actually seen uh, fair boundaries being drawn. At the 2002, the 2010, the 2014 elections, uh, th- uh, three elections in our history, in recent history, where the Liberal Party has gotten more than 50% of the vote uh, but failed to form government, where you've got a situation where it hap- has happened consistently three out of the last four times where the party that got the minority of the vote formed government, uh, then you know that there's something wrong with the system. And in fact, the Boundary Redistribution Committee and then subsequently the full bench of the Supreme Court agreed that there have been, there's been a structural imbalance uh, against the Liberal Party for for four decades, and essentially what what's happened this time round is that we actually got to fair and balanced boundaries. So after we've sort of revisited all of those things, what do we actually think is going to happen? I mean, it's a pretty hard election to predict, but are there any numbers or things we can go on? Well, it's it's definitely going to be a close election, and I think that's why we find it so exciting, is because really. We've got no idea what's going to happen. Um, the polls seem to be quite split and, and they definitely indicate that Nick Xenophon is, is making quite a large mark on this election and he's, he's been quite popular. But it seems like 
could be quite difficult for any of the parties to form a majority government. This is what Jenny Stock had to say. One thing we can be sure of this time round, neither party will get a majority in the um, House of Assembly. It's too big an ask to win the 24 seats outright. I mean, that's quite a big call from Jenny Stock. I guess it is interesting, though, that it is only a four-week campaign, unlike what we see in the US. Uh, there's going to be a lot of action in the next four weeks. So I'm just really excited on the notion that our electoral campaign might be more exciting than America's. Like, what if Hil- I know Hillary Clinton's coming to Australia. Maybe James Comey, the FBI, could come. You know, we, we don't know anything to do with what Xenophon's had to do with Russia. You know, that's oh, been totally yeah, absolutely, I think. Mm. I mean, he might not have um, I mean... dual nationalities <laughs> that we know of, but um, Russian's always on the table. And, Indeed, yeah. Um, Jay Weatherall, I mean, you know, we haven't seen his emails yet, but we don't know what is to come. <laughs> that's all we've got time for before we get potentially sued for defamation warrant. <laughs> What are we going to cover next? So our next episode is going to focus on South Australia's healthcare system. Now, everybody knows this is a big topic, and I think it really is one of the ones that's going to decide the election. So um, I guess we're going to be looking a little bit at uh, transforming health and some of the things that have already been done. But also, what does the way forward look for look like for South Australia? Um, you know, we've got a, a shiny new hospital, but what's the next step? And and also, um, you know, what is what is the Marshall uh, Liberal Party have to offer as an alternative and, and indeed does Nick Xenophon have a policy on health yet and can we dive into that and explore it a bit more? All right well thanks very much for listening to us uh, today guys. Thank you for tolerating us and we'll see you next week. Heaps good politics. Come on and put us to the test. Make a change in the nick of time. Forget the rest. Heaps good politics. Yeah.